Thank you. Now we took a last week because it was harvest, but we're back again. Um, we're in chapter 14. I'm going to read from verse 3 to verse 16. So let's stand again to hear God's word. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through to verse 16. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she poured the vial over his head. But some were indignant, remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this, and they promised to give him money, and began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a larger room, furnished and ready, prepared for us there. The disciples went out, and they came to the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. God bless his word as we consider that in just a moment. Please be seated. <coughs> Let's come to God in prayer before we consider those words in Mark 14. Father, again, we thank you for your word in our lives, the living word that cuts all the way through to where soul and spirit meet, to where joints and marrow come together, judging the very thoughts, the very intentions of our heart. Open it, we pray, to our hearts, therefore. Speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit and the power in your word to be able to be transformed, to draw nearer to you, to be able to worship you as you should be worshipped. And I pray that you'll open my mouth to speak your word for your glory. Amen. So in uh, Mark 14 here, we enter into the events that lead up to and include the crucifixion and the resurrection. Actually all the Bible there leads up to this point. The entire Bible, Old and New Testament, all comes to fruition with God's plan to kill his only son as a once for all sacrifice, as the Lamb. So from chapters 14, uh, 15 and chapter 16 we focus on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice, the ransom, the, the redemption provided for sinners. Now as we saw previously, all the way through the resurrection, uh, the, the crucifixion before it, the, the betrayal before that, the one actually making all these things happen is God himself. The unseen power behind everything is God the Father. He controls the behaviour of the enemies, the friends, the betrayer and the followers of Jesus to do exactly as he has planned 
and accomplishing the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, he's planned it even before the creation of the world. He knew exactly what would happen before there was even a planet. So in Mark chapter 14, verse 3 to 6, we see, as we saw last week, uh, the week before I should say, how God works behind the scenes to accomplish this goal. His goal, as we know, is that Jesus will die as the sacrificial lamb on the Friday at 3 o'clock, at that Passover time, exactly when the lambs will be slain for the Friday Passover afternoon. He will die when the lambs have been slaughtered at three o'clock on Friday as the true Passover lamb. And in fact, by the purpose and the plan of God, Jesus will die at exactly the time, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, when the religious leaders, and also Judas really, didn't want him to die. They did not want him to die at that time. They'd had a meeting we saw in Mark 14 verse 1 and 2 in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. They knew that they had to kill Jesus, they'd been wanting to kill him for quite some time. But we see in verse 2 that the one time they didn't want to do it was during this Passover. Any other time would have been fine, not this week, and certainly not on the Friday, the Passover itself. Because they were worried. And they were worried that there might be a riot of the people. Remember, Jesus was quite popular at this time. He'd been healing people, raising the dead, doing amazing things for three years. And when he rode into Jerusalem on the Monday, they all hailed him, Messiah, Hosanna to the son of David. So obviously, the chief priests and the leaders generally, they thought, well, you know, the, the crowd are going to riot. If we, if we arrest him this week, when he's just ridden into Jerusalem and they've hailed him as a messiah, that's going to be a problem. The devil thought the same, but for a different reason. Because the devil wanted a riot, and we'll see that in a moment. But the people, the religious leaders, were basically afraid. But in spite of their fears, it was God's determination that he would die that week and it would be on that Friday and it would be at the Passover a time when Jerusalem was swelled by hundreds of thousands of people to die during that time was God's plan not the religious leaders and God's plan was the only plan that really mattered so they would never have planned to have Jesus arrested tried, crucified and dying that Friday but that's exactly what happened and these religious leaders, you can see, they, they may well have thought, thought that they were in control and they were doing what they wanted, but really they were pawns in the hands of Almighty God. At the same time, they were still though, guilty and culpable for the hatred and the rejection of Jesus. Because whenever he was crucified, they still hated him, they still rejected him, and they still wanted him dead. So they were held responsible for the murder of the Son of God, although God himself was working it exactly how he wanted it, when he wanted it, and what would happen. He died by the predetermined foreknowledge and purpose of God. So we see his invisible hand behind everything. And we see that the first group of the enemies, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, the Sanhedrin described there in verses 1 and 2, the chief priest, the scribes. We're now going to move from his enemies to his friends, and we're going to look at one particular woman to begin with, a true worshipper of Jesus Christ, who was preparing for his death by this act of loving worship, anointing him for his burial. We also see this event in Matthew, and also in John's Gospel. And by the way, there is another event in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50, of a different woman in a different place, 
on a different occasion who also anointed Jesus' feet. So if you're reading the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark and John, it refers to this event we're looking at this morning. But Luke is a different woman, in a different place, in a different location, different event. Because she did a similar thing in the house of a Pharisee, not a leper. And we know that the Pharisee's name was also Simon, which is why people get confused sometimes, because they think, well, Simon the Pharisee, Simon the leper, perhaps it's the same thing. It isn't. It's a different. The names were the same, but apart from that, everything else was different. Because in Luke, it's a sinful woman, and not a leper, and it's a Pharisee. And it doesn't mention the nard either, it's just a, a general perfume that she uses. So it's a different incident on a different occasion. And incidentally, there are ten Simons mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, it's a common name, just because they're named the same, it doesn't mean it's the same event. And pouring perfume on people was a commonly done thing, although not as much as we're going to see that this woman does it here in Mark. So here in Mark 14, it's not a sinful woman, in fact we know who it is that does this. Mark doesn't mention her name. Uh, Matthew doesn't mention her name either, but John tells us who this woman is. Because in John chapter 12 verse 3, we read it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Remember Mary, Martha and Lazarus, they're the ones who lived in the house near Jerusalem that Jesus went backwards and forwards to during this last week, and he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. So this event here in Mark 14 is not a sinful woman, it's a devout woman, it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So we read in verse 3, he's in Bethany, that's where they lived. Jesus was in Bethany since Saturday. He'd arrived there to get ready for this week. Obviously to celebrate the Passover, but his main point was the fact that he was going to be crucified. So since Saturday, he's been spending time in Bethany, he's been going backwards and forwards, he's going into Jerusalem, he spends time in Jerusalem, he goes back to sleep in Bethany, and he's been staying at their house each night. John chapter 12 verse 1 says, Jesus arrived six days before the Passover and John tells us this event happened then, back on the Saturday. It's out of chronological order in other words. And the reason that it's not in chronological order is because Mark has put it here because it speaks about the preparation of the death of Christ. So he deliberately puts it here even though it did happen actually on the Saturday, just a few days before. <coughs> The enemies of Jesus have their preparation, they're seeking a way to uh, arrest him. And you see all that horror, that evilness, that bitterness with these religious leaders. And then you get this contrast of Mary, who provides the preparation for his death and burial. A gesture that causes Mark to fit it in here, even though it did occur six days earlier. But the chronology is uh, perfect because it, it's just a beautiful event in contrast with the, the nastiness that's going on. And it, event, it happens in a, a man's house called Simon the leper, verse 3. Now obviously he's a former leper, because if he still had leprosy, he wouldn't be having a dinner party. He wouldn't be inviting guests, because lepers were outcasts. You didn't go to lepers' houses to eat a meal. So he's obviously not a leper anymore. Lepers were put out of society because of the contagion of such a disease. Therefore, it's very likely that this man was healed by Jesus. Because there's no cure in these days for leprosy. There was no treatment. And the only people who were cured of leprosy at this time, in that place, they would have been cured by Jesus, healed by Jesus. So this man must have been healed by Jesus. He doesn't have leprosy anymore. 
It's therefore not a stretch to assume that he planned this meal to say thank you to Jesus for healing him for leprosy. And obviously he invited others too who also lived in Bethany, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. There might have been others. We don't know how many were there. It was at least Simon, perhaps. He had a wife. May have had children. There would have been the twelve. There would have been Mary. There would have been Martha and Lazarus. Very typical evening meal. They were all reclining. Uh, the usual posture for a meal. Um, having long conversations. P- uh, meals usually lasted for quite some time. And then as they're reclining, as they're eating this meal... A woman does this act of love. And as I say, John tells us it was Mary of the family of Martha and Lazarus. You might wonder at this point, why does John name her, but Mark and Matthew don't name her? Why does he tell us who she is and they don't tell us who she is? Well, Matthew and Mark were written very early in the life of the church, around the 50s, the 60s AD. John wasn't written till the 90s. 40 years later, 30, 40 years later, it may well be that Mark and Matthew were just being sensitive not to mention the names to protect the family. Remember, persecution was rife. But 40, 30 years later, John doesn't need to worry about that so he can tell us who it was. Now, it was a common custom at a meal to wash the feet of those participating. And sometimes, after washing the feet, they would also put on perfume. That was a normal thing. You're reclining at a table... Your head would be near the next person's feet. Now remember there were sandals, it was dirty, feet can get a bit smelly. So you know, you don't want somebody's feet quite near you when you're having a meal unless they're being washed. So it was normal, you always washed feet before the meal and quite often you'd put perfume on. Not this much perfume, but you would put perfume on. But Mary goes way beyond common courtesy. And what she does is really lavish. She has an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. Matthew says a very precious perfume. A marble bottle typically would have a long neck and a small plug in the top. And what you would normally do, take the top off, just like you do with perfume today. A couple of drops, and that was more than enough. And the value was 300 denarii. That's a year's wages. This is, a, this is expensive. Can you imagine spending a year's wages on a bottle of perfume? Why would you do that? Well, in those days, because it could be stretched out, you could use it over a long period of time to satisfy the social need, and probably it was cheaper to buy in bulk. So she has this alabaster vial, very costly perfume of pure nard. Uh, Nard is from India. Uh, Pure means it's uh, undiluted, so it's the the strongest. You know the difference between uh, perfume, uh, cologne and toilet water? This was the perfume. Very strong. Undiluted, strongest you can get. Uh, By the way, Nard is still from India and you can still use it for perfume today. But Mary then does something that would never be done. She doesn't just take out a few drops on his feet. She breaks the neck of the whole bottle and she pours the whole lot all over him. John adds, she anointed the feet and wiped his feet with her hair. She poured a year's value of perfume all over him. And John adds, which was obvious, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I mean, if you just dropped a bit, uh, the whole room would smell. But houses in those days, um, they weren't that big, and they weren't sectioned off like our houses are today. You didn't have a room and then a a wall and then another room and then a wall and another room. It was pretty much open. So this smell would have permeated the whole house, actually out into the street as well, the whole bottle. Absolutely lavish, profound, sacrificial affection. Now in response to this beautiful act, 
we see indignation. Why has this perfume been wasted? Now Mark doesn't tell us but John tells us actually it was Judas Iscariot who was the main instigator. He's the one who first said it. Some others then joined in thinking well actually yeah that's a good point Judas. Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? In other words Judas even on Saturday was intending to betray Jesus. He was already making his plan. He doesn't come up with the idea in the middle of the week. Right back in Saturday he's already planning because we see in a moment that after this event he leaves and he goes to the religious leaders and he starts thinking well how can I betray him? Let, let's figure out a plan here. So Jesus says why is this poo perfume being wasted? And then the others chime in. It could have been given to the poor. We could have sold that and given it to the poor. Yes, wages. That's a lot of money. Mary symbolises all those who love Jesus with their heart holding nothing back. It's a beautiful gesture. She, it's almost like she can't just think, well, I'll just pour a few drops on his feet. She's thinking, this is the Son of God. This is, he's, remember, he's, he's just risen her brother from the dead. She knows who he is. So she thinks, no, he's going to get the lot. I'm just going to pour it all. She doesn't even think about it. She just goes for it. I'm going to anoint his body for burial. But they're scolding her. They're indignant. Of course, John chapter 12 verse 6 says Judas wasn't really interested in having the money to give to the poor. That wasn't his plan at all. John tells us it was because he was concerned that he could get more money in the box because he used to steal from it. John chapter 12 verse 6. That was his plan. He's just thinking the more money in the box or the bag or whatever they carried the money in, the easier it is for me to steal a bit more out. He's not bothered about the poor at all. He's just stealing money from his closest friends. He's a thief. And he wanted to take money from the box because he continually, John tells us, stole. And as I say, the more money in the box, the easier it was for Judas to get a bit more out. So he's thinking, I could get myself quite a big wad of cash here if she'd have just been sort of looked as if she was going to give to the poor and, and given the money to me and then I could have quite a lot. Now at this point Jesus doesn't expose Judas. I mean if he had then the other disciples would have done something about that pretty quick and I can imagine Judas would have been kicked out and then he wouldn't have been able to betray Jesus when Jesus wanted him to. So he doesn't say anything because he knows why Judas is doing this. He just says in verse 6, let her alone, why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. Lavish love on Jesus Christ is never, ever a waste. And then he says, you've always got the poor with you, and whenever you wish you can do good to them, but you don't always have me. And what he's saying is, literally you've got two more days, and then I'm gone. You'll always have the poor, you can always do something for them, you've only got two days to do something for me, and she's done it, so just leave her alone, she's done the right thing. Giving to the poor obviously has its place, but the ultimate priority is worshipping Jesus Christ. That comes first. Caring for the poor is important. Worship for Jesus, worship for God is more, far more important. And as I say, he's not going to be there very long. More importantly, worship should come first. Mary had her priorities right. Actually, all true worship leads to charity anyway. So this is a very devoted lady. Um, remember in Luke chapter 10, um, when Jesus was in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and what was Martha doing? Well, Martha was in the kitchen while Jesus was teaching. She was busy, busy, busy. Nothing wrong with that. But Mary was sat at his feet, learning 
listening and Jesus said she's done the right thing then. So Mary is obviously a very devout woman. Now Jesus' enemies, they knew that he would die and rise again. Even his enemies, because he kept telling everyone. So we have to assume that Mary must have known it too. She must have understood it. She must have believed it. And she had good reason to believe it, because he'd raised her brother from the dead. She'd had the recent experience of anointing her brother for burial herself, and then seeing him come back to life. So she knew who Jesus was. She knew that he was going to die. And she knew that he could come back again. So it seems that she understood what she was doing here. It wasn't just that Jesus said she's anointing my body for burial. She actually knew what she was doing. Verse 8 says she's done what she could. She can't stop my death, so she's anointed my body for burial. I mean, remember the disciples were constantly fighting against the idea of Jesus dying and rising again. They didn't want him to die. They couldn't accept it. But it seems that Mary, well, she seems to have understood it a bit more. She must have thought, what can I do for my Lord from whom I'd learned so much? Remember, he's in their house a lot. Not just this week, but previous to this, he'd visited on various occasions. And she must have always been sitting and learning from him. She must have known that he would die. She must have believed that he would rise again because she had a, a man living in her house day in, day out, who'd literally risen from the dead. So what could she do? She just pours out this perfume. And then it says, verse, 90, uh, verse 9, And truly, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. That's what we're doing right now. We're talking about this woman 2,000 years later as a testimony to her worship of Jesus. A grateful act of love, looking to the cross, looking to the burial, looking to the resurrection. A lesson of loving worship. So, against the ugliness of the enemies of Jesus and the ugliness of the betrayer of Jesus, we get this beauty from this woman Mary she stands out as a tribute to love now the next person we see after the enemies and after the worshipper is the betrayer because it goes on in verse 10 and 11 to say Judas Iscariot at this point this is a Saturday remember he goes to the chief priests and he lets them know that he's going to have a plan he hasn't figured out what the plan is yet but he's going to have a plan and he's going to betray Jesus to them and he's going to do it for money he wants some money to do it. Remember, he's obviously just interested in the money because he's stealing from the bag anyway, and that's all he's very interested in. He's the only non-Galilean of the group. The rest of them from the north, he's from the south. So he's out on a limb a little bit, and he probably feels that Jesus isn't really doing what he wanted him to do. He isn't really a messiah, he's all humble, and now he keeps saying he's going to die, he's going to be rejected. And Judas eventually thinks, well, I'm going to betray him, and I may as well get something out. I've, I've wasted three years with him, I may as well get some compensation, I want to get some money for this. So he goes to them and he wants to betray Jesus and be paid to do it. And he's obviously planning it for the whole week. He had the plans in motion because the details had already been established. He, Jesus actually predicted his own betrayal. Um, he quotes Psalm 41 verse 19, telling you before it comes to pass that it, you may believe it when it happens, that somebody who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus knew it was going to happen. But Judas there, he's always looking, really in the absence of the crowd, Luke tells us, Luke 22 verse 6, he doesn't want to betray him when the crowds are around, but he wants to betray him. He's fearful, obviously, like the leaders, that it wouldn't be a good idea when the crowds are around. 
So he looks for the best way to hand Jesus over quietly for money. And he agrees, and Matthew 26 verse 15 tells us he agrees to do it for 30 pieces of silver. Which according to Exodus 21 verse 32 is the price of a slave. So there's Judas. He's making these plans. He's looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And he didn't operate alone because Luke 22 verse 3 says that Satan entered Judas. That's ominous. Not a demon. Every other possession is of a demon possessing a person. Satan himself doesn't normally possess people. In fact, as far as we know, Judas is the only one he ever bothered to possess. But Satan himself possesses Judas. And you might wonder, what was Satan trying to accomplish? And this is another one of those times when people do get get a little bit wrong because they haven't really read the Bible that much they don't understand the Bible there are loads of verses in the Bible where people don't quite get it and Matthew 18 verse 20 where two or three are gathered in my name I'm there with them that's usually the one that people get a bit stuck on because they think that that just means that when you gather together and if there's more than one of you he's with you that's not what the verse is saying if you're by yourself he's with you Matthew 18 verse 20 is talking about when you agree to enact uh, punishment because somebody sinned and you're going to put them out of the church it's all about church discipline and where two or three agree on the action that you're going to have then God is with you in that decision this is another one of those cases because people think Satan his plan was to have Jesus crucified Satan wanted to kill Jesus people say no he didn't the last thing that Satan wanted was for Jesus to be crucified on the Friday. That's not Satan's plan. And you might think, hang on, that doesn't make sense. No, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Satan did not want to put Jesus on the cross because Satan knew exactly what the cross meant. Unlike the disciples, he was not seeking Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, I know for a fact he wasn't because he said so himself. Remember back in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I'm going to die. He said it all the time. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. What did Peter say? Oh, no, 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 that's not part of the plan. No, we don't want that. And then notice what Jesus says to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. In other words... Keeping Jesus from the cross was Satan's plan, not God's. That was Satan speaking through Peter. No, don't go to the cross. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Satan, you see, he knew full well, more than any other person, not that he's a person, but you know what I mean, that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Satan knew Genesis 3 verse 15, the first indication we get of Jesus where it says that God says Satan will bruise his heel but he will crush Satan's head. Satan knows that verse. He knows all that. He understands the Old Testament better than any person who's ever lived. He knows the Bible far better than any human. He understood all the Levitical sacrifices pointing to the one true sacrifice. He knows Isaiah 53. He knows Psalm 22 that all point to Jesus as the Lamb. He knew God's plan. He knew that if Jesus died on the cross his own kingdom would forever be destroyed. It was God who wanted Jesus on the cross, not Satan. Satan wanted to stop it, and that's why he said so through Peter. So, 
your next question is why then does he get Judas to betray Jesus well the answer to that is quite simple as well Satan doesn't know everything he knows the past he knows the Bible, he knows Jesus is the Messiah, he knows Jesus is going to die on the cross, he knows that that will be the end of his domain. So his plan is to stop that. How can he stop it? Well, Satan has seen the crowds on Monday shouting for Jesus, saying Hosanna. Satan knows that the crowds might rise up. Satan knows that they could stop the crucifixion. That's what Judas feared. That's what the religious feared. That's what Satan wanted. Satan, you see, was moving on Judas that particular week to start a riot. And if that happened, the people would prevent the murder of Jesus. They'd just hailed him as Messiah, King, on the Monday. Satan wanted to create a scenario that would halt the direction of Jesus to the cross. We know that because he said, I don't want him on the cross. So he moves into Judas and he wants the crowds to riot and stop the crucifixion because he knows that's exactly what's going to happen and the saddest thing about Judas was that he was one of the twelve verse 10 I mean Judas he's been with the disciples with Jesus for three whole years 24 hours a day seven days a week and he still betrays Jesus he had the greatest privilege the greatest opportunity that anyone could ever have literally being with the Son of God face to face for three years walking talking listening to the living God all the time in the glorious holy presence experiencing his truth his beauty his power his wisdom seeing him raise people from the dead and yet he still violated him monstrously the most heinous crime committed by any man in all history so Satan moves in Judas moves to the plan it's hard to imagine one of the twelve doing it but that's exactly what happens of course again it was predicted in the Old Testament that's why Judas was empowered by Satan Satan knew it was going to be Judas all along he knew that he could use Judas because he knew what it says in the Old Testament Jesus even says in John I've not lost any of you except the son of perdition that's Judas the betrayer the scripture might be fulfilled so Jesus, Jesus knew what it says in the Bible as well as Satan, obviously. Judas is the greatest illustration of a wasted opportunity. Of course, the betrayal happens at a time when Judas didn't want it to happen, because we've already seen he doesn't want the crowds to riot. It happens at a time when the rulers didn't want it to happen, because they're worried that there'll be a riot. But it does happen at a time when Satan wanted it to happen, hoping for the riot that the religious leaders and Judas were worried about. However, Judas, the religious leaders, and even Satan, what they did was underestimate the fickleness of the crowd. And you can understand why. Remember, this is the same crowd that on the Monday said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hailing Jesus as the Messiah. Even Satan didn't see that coming, that they would still cry, crucify him on the Friday. It, it is unusual. And why is it unusual? Because God was in control. The crowd were always going to turn. Because it turned out the way God planned, not Judas, not the religious leaders, and not even Satan. Even Satan didn't get his way. Finally, one more group. We've seen the enemies, the friends, and the betrayer. Now, let's just look at the disciples, because it continues on, and this is really important for the whole aspect of what's happening this day. 
First day of unleavened bread, when the lambs were sacrificed, the disciples said, where do you want us to go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Remember, they're in Jerusalem for the Passover. They have to have a Passover meal. They can't just do it in the street. They need a room big enough for at least 12 of them, and they need the facilities to have a lamb and all the sauce and all the other bits and pieces. It's, it's a little undertaken. They can't just turn up somewhere and say, oh, let's uh, share your Passover. They've got to have their own Passover. They need a private room. This would have been something that Judas excitedly anticipated because this would be the perfect place to have Jesus arrested. It's at night. It's in a private room. It's just the twelve. There were no crowds. There wouldn't be a riot because nobody would know. But Jesus knew Judas's thoughts. It wasn't time for Jesus to be arrested just yet. So what Jesus does in verse 12, he sends two disciples and he says, Go into the city, you see a man carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. This way Judas won't know where this place is, where they're going to have the Passover. First of all, a man carrying water was very unusual because only women did that in those days. So this man would really stand out. So they'd just look around, they'd see a man, he'd be the only man carrying water. They'd say, obviously he's the man because nobody else, no man would do that follow him. He really stood out in the crowd. Jesus then said, you follow him, he'll take you to the room, then you will get the lamb ready and all the other items for the Passover. Very, very important because Jesus must have the Passover with his disciples this week. First of all, the reason he must have the Passover is because he's going to turn it into the Lord's table. He's going to turn it into communion, which we will be celebrating this morning. Also, he needed a bit of time to teach the disciples. We read about that, all of it, well, probably not all of it, but a lot of it, the teaching that he gave them on the Thursday night at that Passover, at that communion, was recorded in John chapter 13 to 17. So Jesus has to die on the Friday at 3 o'clock when the lambs are being sacrificed, but before that he has to celebrate the Passover because he wants to turn it into the communion, he wants to teach the disciples and also he has to obey the Lord God's command to have a Passover because he fulfilled all righteousness. So he has to have this Passover. For that to happen he can't be arrested just yet. It has to be just an, not too long but not on this particular night before the Passover. So on this Thursday they follow the man, he shows them the room, they make all the preparations the rest of the disciples are taken there by Jesus when they go from Bethany on the Thursday and he takes them to this room and Judas didn't know where it was so he couldn't betray Jesus before this. He couldn't leave so it was too late. Jesus covers every single detail because of the urgency, because of the, the importance. And there's an interesting footnote uh, that I told you a couple of weeks ago. There were two different evenings when the Passover was celebrated. The people in the north, as I've already said, that's all of the disciples apart from Judas. People in Galilee, they would celebrate the Passover on the Thursday evening. While the people in the south, the Judeans, would celebrate it on the Friday. They would say very proudly that Friday is the best day anyway because, you know, the, I don't know, I'm from the north and southerners do look down on northerners quite a bit. I think they used to in these days too. But anyway, the point is, you had two different Passovers. It would be obviously, it made it a lot easier to sacrifice the, the, the many, many lambs and get them through the process. They just did it in two parts. But that was perfect. Because that meant Jesus could celebrate the Passover in obedience to the law 
and turn it into the communion and spend time teaching the disciples on the Thursday but still die at the Passover as the lamb on the Friday when all the southerners were sacrificing their lambs for Passover. So you could have a Passover and be sacrificed exactly on the Passover. And all these people were doing what they were doing but God was behind everything, directing it exactly as he wanted it. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but while he was on earth, God borrowed everything he needed. He borrowed human life, in a sense, for 33 years. He was born in a borrowed manger. He lived in borrowed houses. He never had a house. He lived in borrowed houses and was fed by people all throughout his ministry. He never had a job. He entered Jerusalem on a borrowed animal. He borrowed lodgings from his friends in Bethany. He borrowed a room for a Passover. He even borrowed a cross for a few hours and then he was buried in a borrowed grave. But while he borrowed all of that, he actually owned everything. And that really shows you the, the condescension of the amazing God that we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing account of Jesus and how you, as our Lord and our God, directed everything. It was going to happen exactly how you wanted it to happen. At a time that the religious leaders and, the, and Judas didn't want it to happen. At a time that Satan did want it to happen, but what he wanted didn't happen either because you planned for Jesus to die. He didn't want that. He knew what would happen when Jesus went to that cross. And you planned every single item of it. And it happened exactly the way that you decided. We thank you, Lord, that you are in control. Help us to remember that when we have our own worries and concerns. We, we know that you're in control of our lives as individuals and also as a church together. Your will is always done. Help us to just understand that. Amen.